one what's up everybody it is time for your weekly installment of the nuclear barbarians podcast and i am here with fellow barbarian isaac or from center of the american experiment minnesota's most infamous think tank how's it going buddy doing great thanks for having me on the show Emmett. yeah man good to have you back so People who keep up with the newsletter will know that you a recent sort of forewarning report, whatever you want to call it, on problems in the Midwest independent operating system, MISO, with your fellow think tank mate, Mitch. That happened, yeah, that happened at the end of the month, I think, not too long ago, like a week ago, you guys published that. Yeah, so Mitch is getting some authorship credit that maybe or maybe not he doesn't deserve this. So no, Mitch is a great. He was, you know, looked it over, made sure I had everything right. But yeah, so we have a, a publication at our organization called Thinking Minnesota. It's a quarterly magazine, and we send it out to over a hundred thousand households. So wow, uh, I had of, no idea. That's huge. Yeah, it's one of the largest uh, magazines by circulation in the state. So you know, I, they ask me to write a piece for it almost every time. And I oblige because I like getting paid. Yes. And so this time around, I wrote a piece called uh, below zero blackouts, question mm-hmm. mark. It was called blackouts below zero when I started writing it, but basically the mid-continent independent systems operator, MISO, it used to be the Midwest systems operator. Oh, that's and, right. then, yeah. and then they extended it down to the Gulf coast. So they had to change the, uh, the name, but they didn't want to change the acronym, I think is how that went. Fair um, enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like the branding would be all screwed up. We got to yeah, right, right. keep the acronym. But they issued a report in October that showed that the uh, amount of capacity, reliable capacity that they had on their system could be insufficient to meet winter demand in a circumstance where you know you have an abnormal level of outages or low wind speeds. So, you know, unfortunately, what that means is if we had had a polar vortex this year, we could have been looking at the same situation that the Southwest Power Pool and ERCOT were looking at last February when, you know, winter Mm -hmm. storm Uri came down. Yeah. I mean, so I was going through the report and I've read some MISO reports before. I think Madison, now Hilly, formerly Sirwinski, congrats, Maddie. I know you're listening. What's up? She and I wrote something on the insane Biden and rels like think about how we're just going to do a hugely solar grid mm-hmm. by like 2050. And I went looking to see like, I was like, okay, so what are ISOs saying internally about their own ability to onboard this amount of renewables? Right. And I found a report from MISO and they were just like, yeah, so anything North of like 20%, we have no idea what to do about. They're like, but anyway, we're going to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They they have MISO has a renewables integration assessment, and it basically shows that anything past twenty or thirty percent renewable on a system wide basis becomes exponentially more difficult to, you know, do things like balance the load, maintain reliability, and you know, when I look at something like that, I say, oh, this is going to be incredibly doable and maybe not worth pursuing when somebody. <laughs> You know, but when somebody who likes renewable says, look, MISO says it's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's one of the things that's going on and we're going to get to that, but I want to get to yeah. maybe like a hotter topic because I think we talked about this the first time you came on, you talked about it when you went on Power Hungry with Robert Bryce, which is how I found out about you, is that coal is suffering in Minnesota. 
And that's one of the reasons why MISO is sort of like, we might be running into some demand issues. <laughs> like coal plants don't have enough fuel on site from what I understand. And you've written a little bit about this before. Yeah, yeah. So I started writing, the deadline for this piece was actually mid-November. So mm-hmm. the I started writing it at the beginning of November, shortly after that MISO report came out. And at that time, there was a lot of consternation, not only in MISO, but also in PJM, talking about the fact that we may not have enough coal to get through the winter. So I have some, some friends that work in the utility industry in Minnesota. They were saying, yeah, we've already burned through all of the coal that we thought we were going to need for 2021 by August of 2021, because they were burning so much more coal over the summer due to high natural gas prices. So when the price of natural gas goes up, they'll dispatch the coal first because it's the lowest marginal cost in that circumstance. And because natural gas prices were so high, these, these companies were like, oh my God, we need to find more coal. And the, the power or the coal companies were like, oh, hey, remember you guys tried to bankrupt us by stopping the use of our product. So we sold off a lot of the equipment that we would Mm -hmm. use to scale up production. So sorry, like we got what we got and let us know if you want it, but it's, we're having a hard time getting it to people because of, you know, labor supply shortages and whatnot. So the, the stocks of coal were near 30 year lows earlier this year. And you know, thankfully that situation has improved a little bit. We had a warmer than expected early start to the winter in, mm-hmm. in MISO and gas prices have come down a little bit as a result of that as well. So that, and, you know, it was pretty windy, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'm a farm kid. I grew up, you know, hoping for good weather and it's not a fun circumstance to be in, but when it goes your way, you're like, all right, cool. Yeah. 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 So this is such an interesting echo to me from, so I wrote a commentary in the last newsletter about how maybe what happened to the regulated monopoly utility is in the 70s is what's happening to the RTO experiment in the 2020s, where we have these constant gut checks. There's an erosion of the underlying ideology and all of these things. And I think one of the things that made me think that is this repeat of the experience with coal. Because in the 70s, they were like, we're, we're, gonna, we're about to build all this nuclear. So like, what do we need coal for? And then of course, OPEC is like, hey, what's up in 1973? You know, we don't have a lot of domestic oil and we need coal to come on the grid. And everybody's looking around like, I don't know, do you have any? Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing, like, especially in the MISO market, I'm not sure if there's really an erosion of the the trust in the MISO institution right now in the way that we see with ERCOT and maybe uh, New England ISO. But I do think that we're going to see, I think, even a further erosion of trust in the monopoly utility model. But, you know, the alternative is to that is what's a better alternative. But, you know, in the same way that customers were frustrated with the, the cost of nuclear power plants in the 80s, that was very you know, enlightening when Rod, Rod Adams was on the show talking about mm-hmm. how the high interest rates just crippled the nuclear industry because they had such long build times. But I think that we are going to see a situation where you know, the ratepayers ultimately won out in their battle for wanting something that was more cost controlled. And mm-hmm. right now, utilities are 
green plating their grids. You know, in the 70s, yeah. they were being accused of gold plating. So uh, yesterday I testified to the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission about Excel Energy's integrated resource plan, which is their plan for the next 10 years of what they're going to do. And Excel wants to shut down existing coal-fired power plants like 10 years before the end of their useful lifetimes and replace them with a combination of, you know, thousands of megawatts of wind turbines, solar panels, and 800 megawatts of natural gas. So they want to shut down 2,400 megawatts of coal and basically have, they call them native capacity shortfalls. But uh, what that means is they're going to try and import from the MISO market when the renewables are not producing. And, you know, the, the major problem with that is, you know, you're getting rid of a dispatchable, very affordable source of energy and building, you know, more than 3x the capacity that you're shutting down. And, you know, the wind turbines are going to last 20 years, the solar panels last 25 years. So, mm -hmm. you know, th they have, they like to pat themselves on the back about being carbon free by 2050. But, those assets will be scrap metal by the time 2050 rolls around. So I think that that's just an incredibly bad way to, to run their grid. We said, you know, if you want to build new nuclear plants at that site, then I think we could get yeah, behind that. But so the, the flip side to that is Excel has asked to increase their electricity prices by 21.2 over the next three years to the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission. And that is not even incorporating the billions of dollars that they're going to need to spend on this new IRP. So, well, and when, also the billions of like however much money is staying in the base rate yeah. for switching off coal early. Exactly. Like it's not like they're like, oh yeah, you're not paying for that anymore because we're done using it. Right, right. So the, <laughs> the sad thing is most of these coal plants are almost entirely depreciated. So they are the lowest cost source of power on Excel system, except for their nuclear plants. So, you know, we said, keep the existing nuclear open as long as you can keep the coal plants open as long as you can mm -hmm. and look to build something that might be higher value in terms of reliability, affordability, and environmental attributes in the future, right? Keep your powder dry for ratepayers. let them keep their own money, <laughs> uh, yeah, you right, know, yeah. and you know, let's evaluate this when we have something that actually offers a superior alternative. You know, I, I go on and on about we need to be Norman Borlaug environmentalists all the time. Like mm -hmm. you can only advance environmental goals by advancing the human condition at the same time. If those yeah. two objectives are in conflict with each other, it's not going to work out the way you want it to. No. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, OK. <laughs> So here's the other thing that is wild to me, because I saw you tweeting about this, I think, and then I found I found the link through your Twitter, but you had this map that was like a time lapse of all of the solar that gets built in the Midwest. And there is a ton of it in Minnesota. I mean, I'm from the Midwest. That, that It doesn't make sense to me why you would build that much solar in a place that has sky hallways and it's downtown. So that people <laughs> can walk for, to store to store in the bad weather. Like, how did this happen? Yeah, well, I was going to make a joke about how tropical it is here, but your sky <laughs> hallways was a much better joke. It's, it's policy, right? So we, in 2013, we had a complete control of the House, Senate, and governorship by the, the Democrats in power. And they said, we want to mandate 1.5% of the state's power come from solar panels, regardless of the cost. 
So we have, we have like a community solar program, which sounds nice, but it's super expensive. It's like 150 bucks a megawatt hour for Holy uh, electricity. Yeah. So we just have a lot of, you know, people who like solar call it policy support for, <laughs> for, for solar in the state. And to me, that map is so great because if you look at Wisconsin, my homeland, if you look <laughs> at North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, nowhere near the amount of solar. So when all these people say, oh, well, it's the free market that's selecting solar. I'm like, if that were the case, wouldn't you think there'd be a little bit more of an even distribution across state lines? What is it about the Western side of the Mississippi River that is so much more conducive to solar than the Eastern side of yeah. the Mississippi River? Yeah, that seems to be the way this works. You and I were talking a few days ago and we were discussing sort of the Trojan horse way that these people onboard renewable energy. And it starts with very fair gripes from a market perspective on access to the market, ability to enter the market, and frustration with the stranglehold that monopoly utilities exert on that sometimes. Okay. Then they're like, what we want is more competition. What we want is smaller generating facilities. For us, that's going to mean renewables. But of course, they're like, so that also means we're just going to dump a shitload of subsidies into building a ton of these facilities. And then we're going to turn around and say, look what the free market did. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's it's like that meme where the guy shoots him. He's just like, why would they do that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Why would they do this? Why would the free market do this? So how do... Minnesotans, how are they responding to this? Do, are they blissfully unaware of the issues in the grid? Is it something people are more, more and more talking about out there? Or give me, give me sort of a ground level view as you understand. I, my, my gut reaction would be people don't get it because they don't have a reason to get it, right? Like, I think that cost pressure starts to get some people interested, right? But the people who are going to be the most impacted by the cost of rising electricity prices are also the people who are not necessarily always the most politically involved, right? Yeah. So like if you're working two jobs just to keep food on your table, you don't have time to sit and read about Excel Energy increasing your prices again. You just see that you see it on your bill, right? So we have like a very comfortable class in Minnesota and you know, on exhaust, I loved that episode where you talked about the professional managerial class. And oh, yeah, yeah. like, you know, I'm a farm kid. I grew up like living, like not knowing where the, the next paycheck was necessarily going to come from. So mm -hmm. to me, it's like kind of this tyranny of the suburbs and like the mm -hmm. comfy people who just know that like their job is going to be there next year. They can know the income. They just assume that the electricity comes from the wall and the milk comes from the store. And unless something interrupts that sort of worldview, whether that's like a huge price spike or, you know, an interruption of service. I just don't think that they necessarily feel that they need to pay attention to it. It's, it's the idea of what is it? Rational ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't check my electric bill all the time. Well, I do because I'm me, but yeah, right. uh, yeah. if I wasn't involved in this, like, I don't know, I wouldn't care so much. So like if, if it's a manageable expense, you kind of just like, okay, well, I guess that's the cost of doing business. And 
you don't really need to re-examine your, because everybody wants to feel like they're doing the right thing and renewables feel, it's a feel good story, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's like Snackwell's cookies in the nineties. Like it, everyone thought it made sense, but it doesn't. Yeah, that is more and more becoming the case. I love the tyranny of the suburbs idea because I think that really wins true. There's a whole like net metering debate happening in California right now. And also a debate about like rooftop solar. And it's like, yeah, I live in a small apartment in Los Angeles. I don't really care about rooftop solar. But of course, people who live in the suburbs and have a roof are like very, very invested in, you know, feed in tariffs or whatever. <laughs> it's going to happen, you know, with their own solar panels. And well, I yeah, they need to they need to steal from you using their solar panels, Emmett. Like it's legalized yeah. theft. Yeah, I mean that's basically what it amounts to, right? It, it is though. That's I'm being facetious, yeah. absolutely, like 100% being facetious. But yeah. it is a wealth transfer from people without solar panels to people with solar panels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's the like? Is there obviously it's not just even if Democrats have had a majority. It's not just Democrats in Minnesota. Correct. There's a strong Republican presence in the state. Sort of what are the partisan debates, if there are any, over the Minnesota grid, over MISO, over energy in general that are happening? So unfortunately, what has happened when it comes to all of this stuff, climate is the number one concern. And everyone seems to think that energy policy is a subsect of climate policy. Whereas I don't think that that's the right list of priorities. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm all about reliable energy first, affordable energy second, and to the extent that you can decarbonize or improve the environment, like they need to fall in line after those two, right? Yeah. So like, like I said on Robert's podcast, like if you're thinking about the hierarchy of needs for Maslow, like reliability is the base of the pyramid, affordability is next. And when you reach the pinnacle of, you know, civilization, you can get to carbon free, but you can't sacrifice those other two. But when I was testifying yesterday in front of the PUC, Excel Energy wants to go carbon free first, they want to be reliable second, and they want mm -hmm. affordability to be last. The clean energy organizations promoting carbon free first, rely or sorry, affordability second, and reliability last. So like, that's a violation of the public trust in the utility concept, right? Like, the reason that we gave over basically a monopoly to them, and I'm probably going to butcher this, you'll need to correct me after this, because you're the expert reading up on all the utility history, but like the regulatory compact was established to make sure that everybody had access to this, this service because it's so good, right? Mm -hmm. And like the cost of service model was made. So it was like power at cost, like you guys talked about last time. So when you start to erode that for an environmental goal and that becomes your primary concern, like it has been in Minnesota, we see legislation going forward that will, you know, even furthered by Republican state senators who hold a majority in that body that will prioritize renewables. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even legalize new nuclear power plants sometimes where like one of the only states in the country with an all-out ban on building new nuclear yeah, power Yeah, yours plants. is even tougher than like, I think West Virginia's was. Yeah, and you know, it's always the people that say they care about the science and, you know, call climate change an existential crisis who are the least informed on new nuclear power or old nuclear power, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. uh, 
And like, they basically think that this thing is like the worst possible climate change is the worst possible thing that could happen for humanity. Yet they are unwilling to even consider the, like the ready-made drop-in so plug and play solution to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, like, unfortunately, like the legislature isn't looking at the reliability of the grid either to the extent that I think they should, you have some people, I mean, I, I do my, my best to educate people that saying like, look, you guys are, you guys are basically pulling the, uh, the blocks out from the bottom of the Jenga table here. So like, <laughs> let's, let's make sure we're not doing that. Like if you want an off ramp, fine, but you know, that's, that's not what anybody, like people don't think voters want practical solutions to real world problems because mm-hmm. like cable news is such a, like you have to be flashy in order to get any attention. So like we have proposals that are increasingly divorced from pragmatism or reality because you need to be the person that gets those, you know, that 30 second clip on, mm-hmm. on the news. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I think that's just endemic everywhere. And it's trying to figure out how to get around that. Also how to create coalitions, because frankly, if reliability has to be a bipartisan concern, if it's going to be entrenched as a status quo. And I think we all want that. I think we all want it to be like, everyone just agrees that even if it's a debate, the debate should be about reliability. Like that's what we're trying to figure out when we're looking at energy policy at the state and at the national level and how that fits in, like you said, with decarbonization goals, because otherwise it's just all loosey goosey. And I just, I was immediately thinking about Minnesota as, what is it, uh, land of a thousand lakes, right? I think it says that on your license. Yeah, 10,000 lakes. 10,000, that's what it is, yeah. And I was just like, wow, I wonder if any of those are going to have to go to make room for the amount of insane renewables build out Minnesota would need if it just starts committing over and over again. To, I'm not saying literally you get rid of it. Yeah, lake, yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean, like just getting rid of what is scenic and beautiful about Minnesota to make room for these energy portfolios these people want. I don't think they ever even consider that. Well, no, and it's very interesting. Just, you know, we're we're recording this on the 26th. About two hours ago, the Biden administration canceled the permits for the Twin Metals mine, which would be a nickel or a copper nickel mine in northeastern Minnesota. So the elements that you need for the batteries to store this electricity, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, electric car or any of his other, you know, priorities when it comes to building renewables and storage, not willing to get the stuff here in in Minnesota. So willing to, you know, do whatever they need to do in terms of paving over farmland with wind turbines and solar panels. But it's, it's such an interesting dichotomy. It's the same people that are the most in favor of, you know, mandates for EVs, mandates for wind and solar, who are also the most opposed to, you know, producing those minerals here in Minnesota, rather than importing them from like the Congo where, you know, kids mm-hmm. are working in the cobalt mines, or, you know, there was a, there was a piece recently, I think it was, it was either Indonesia or the Philippines, where they were ex- expanding a mine in a rainforest in order to get more of the nickel used. And you know, the, the permitting here in the United States is hell, but Mm -hmm. you know, the Trump administration was trying to, you know, at least let the process play out. So the, the thing about the, the Biden administration's decision with the nickel mine or the copper nickel mine 
is they preemptively said no to this. They didn't even let them collect their, you know, their baseline sampling and say, mm -hmm. no, we actually don't think that you can do this. It was basically like, nope, we're just not going to let it happen. So yeah, I, that's so insane to me. So C. Boyd and Gray had a piece out in American Affairs. I put it in the newsletter that is basically like this energy policy necessarily leads to a loss of energy sovereignty for the United States. There's no way around that. He had a follow-up piece that he co-authored that I think came out this morning and is the homepage uh, leading story on American conservative that goes through some of the same issues and puts what's happening in Ukraine into energy context. So highly useful piece, but I was thinking about sort of this, I don't want you to build anything near anything anywhere, like banana, not NIMBY, you know, that's sort of the perspective here. And then you get this language that's built around environmental justice, which now FERC is stored, starting to pivot towards when they're thinking about their plant approval processes or their site approval processes. So the Weymouth compressor facility which is for natural gas out in Massachusetts, was up before FERC pretty recently, I think just a few days ago. And FERC now has a Democratic majority mm -hmm. in how it makes decisions. So they approved Weymouth, but at the same time, they said going forward, and Alice, I think Alison, the chairwoman, was really emphatic about this, was like, we need to have an extra focus on environmental justice communities and how we fight these things. Now, I have a, like a whole spiel about why environmental justice is usually a bullshit phrase used to smuggle all sorts of other things in. But I thought it was interesting because it was like, if this is what we're going to hobble, we're going to hobble all things that provide energy density. Like, what about, I don't know, energy justice communities that are first to experience high rates and rolling blackouts? Yeah, absolutely. And we are actually running radio ads in Minnesota for those communities right now. We cut radio ads in Spanish, in Somali. We have some for, you know, we call it rural Minnesota, greater Minnesota, where mm -hmm. when you look at the Department of Energy's map for people who pay a disproportionate share of their income for energy bills, just letting them know this is exactly the this isn't some like thing that happened out of the blue, right? This mm -hmm. is the logical conclusion of the policies that have been enacted in this state for the last 15 years. So in order to you know, address this from a, a market perspective and reduce the cost rather than simply you know, increase the subsidies to low-income families, right? Like that's the first thing that people always try to do, or at least in Minnesota, like, oh no, the, the cost of electricity is going up. Let's increase the fees on kind of those middle income families mm -hmm. in order to help ease the pain for the people at the lower end of the, the income scale. Like, well, here's a crazy idea. How about you just make energy affordable for everybody and mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about that, right? So absolutely, like this, this energy justice or environmental justice, like they're basically cutting off the rungs of the ladder, like giving people the opportunity to save more money and use that for whatever else. Yeah, that that grinds my gears. I mean, that's sort of what I'm worried about now is that as we've watched this ideology spread, that it actually becomes part of institutional path dependency. Like it enters into the decision-making and then becomes 
precedent. You know, like, because here's my whole thing. I'm like, all right, we live in a society, obviously. (laughs) So all societies have a justice system. When you say environmental justice, if you're really worried about how people are going to be hurt or something like that, why isn't your focus primarily on those people rather than the vague concept of the environment? That seems like a weird way, like a weird sleight of hand to play when you're trying to think about the quality of human life. And the reason why they focus on the environment is so that you don't have to do cost benefit calculations that factor in things like the cost of energy for everyday people. Interesting, yeah. I guess I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of just kind of like institutional inertia, another thing that, you know, Meredith talks about this all the time, Meredith Anguin, I just assume she's like the Oprah on this yeah. podcast, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you say her name and you know, exactly. everybody knows, you're... man. Yeah. Everybody knows. But the, one of the things that I thought, you know, just kind of bring it back to the, the piece that we started talking about mm-hmm. with this is the way that MISO calculates reserve margins is yeah, very problematic. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty proud of myself. I came up with this idea to call them phantom firm uh, I love resources. That, by the way. Yeah. So when I was looking at this graph, so in my piece, there is a a graph that shows, you know, it's basically the capacity stacks in a blue Mm -hmm. bar. Like this is what we think is going to be there in terms of reliable capacity to meet demand. There's a green bar that's called load modifying resources, which is basically we'll shut the power off on you. It's the opposite Mm -hmm. of Motel 6. We'll turn the lights off on (laughs) you. So I hate demand response programs. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, Mark Nelson does a good job of describing these as trying to solve the problem of people wanting electricity. And yeah. like, that's such an unethical thing, right? But there's also uh, demand lines or probable load lines for electricity in January for the peak demand, right? So, you know, in the normal generation scenario, it looks like we're going to be okay in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, having those blue bars, which is the, you know, the capacity meet the demand lines. But under this low wind generation and, you know, high outage scenario, that's not the case. So they're either going to be dependent on PJM imports. And we, uh, during the polar vortex of 2021, MISO imported about 7,500 megawatts at their peak of power from PJM. PJM saved our bacon because MISO was busy trying to save SPP's bacon. So like if there had been an interconnection with Texas, um, ERCOT, obviously, MISO would have had rolling blackouts up the whole uh, RTO footprint, I think. But it would have been better for Texas because obviously they wouldn't have had just 48 hours of straight blackouts. They would have been able to Mm -hmm. roll the outages. But PJM definitely, definitely saved our bacon there. But so I called MISO and emailed MISO because I said, I want to know what's in this stack. Like, what are you, you know, the sausage being made? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this all in one blue bar, but I want to see a bunch of different color bars. Like here's your nuclear bar. Here's your coal. I want lifesavers. Yes. I want the (laughs) lifesavers chart, please. Yeah. Uh, Dear MISO, please send lifesavers. (laughs) And they wouldn't send it to me. So, you know, for being a nonprofit, it's very difficult for them to, get the sign off to give you, give you, where's the beef, right? Like, mm-hmm. I just want to know how much wind are you assuming is going to be available in this stack? Because that's important. Mm-hmm. So MISO assumes that there is a 17% capacity value for wind uh, year round, right? So that's the the number that they give MISO for year reliability. 
Yeah. So MISO doesn't even do a seasonal resource adequacy. That's something that they're looking at doing. I so and here's the thing, right? Like giving wind any capacity value in the winter, in my opinion, is incredibly irresponsible because, yeah. you know, at a certain, the wind turbines up here have the winter heating packages, right? So mm -hmm. unlike Texas, we have heaters installed in the wind turbines that kick on to keep them warm so they don't freeze and don't need to get shut down at as high a temperature. I'm guessing those are powered with solar, right? Uh, how did you know? Um, <laughs> so like there are times during cold weather where the wind is a net load on the MISO system. So like it will actually be drawing more power to heat the oil in the gearboxes than the wind is generating. Because at negative 22, even if you have the cold weather package on your wind turbine, they shut them down for safety reasons, right? So when you have peak energy needs, right? The wind is literally incapable of showing up to work. They just like phone it in. So in and my opinion, consuming. yes, yes. They're a net consumer of, of electricity, <laughs> right? So my, my theory is MISO should have a negative capacity value for wind in the wintertime, just in case, right? Like you build a bridge yeah. to like, not just to, you know, accommodate your average weight on the bridge. It's the maximum possible weight plus a factor of safety. Yeah. And that's what we should be looking at when it comes to, comes to the electric grid. So when getting back to this idea of a phantom firm resource, like, if MISO is saying that 17% of the wind is going to be available during a time of peak demand and it isn't, then we're, we're in big trouble because on February 19th, I, you know, MISO, or not MISO, EIA has great data on this. Energy Information Administration, mm -hmm. go to their hourly God, they have grid so monitor. Much. Yeah, they have it's so fantastic. Much. But, you know, during February 19th at noon, wind was producing four and a half times less than what MISO expected them to be producing, right? It was at like 4.8 or something like that, right? So they're of their potential capacity factor, right? So I sent you and Maddie a graph that shows the Coal Creek Station in North Dakota, which is an 1150 megawatt coal plant out there. And it generated more electricity than like the 22,000 megawatts of wind installed in MISO at the time uh, for like multiple hours during the polar vortex, right? Like 1150 megawatt plant capacity generated more than 22,000 megawatts of wind. And yet we're still talking about how there's more value for wind and that coal is not necessary to maintain a stable grid. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I didn't know the thing about the cold weather package mm -hmm. turning wind into a net consumer. I'd like to see data on, I mean, that seems like levelized cost of intermittency stuff to me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'd like to know how many like winterized turbines there are in America and like when they become net consumers. Oh, and the utilities do not want to give that up. Like I have friends at the utility industry that I bug all the time for that. I'm like, we can't give you that. I'm like, give me the data. I want it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just give me the goods, man. All I want is how much electricity is it going to take to keep that per megawatt of installed capacity? And all they do is give me the runaround because they know how embarrassing it is. I mean, if that got out, I mean, I would imagine you would need the same thing for offshore 
in places like New England where it gets, I mean, especially if you're near the water, it gets insanely cold. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I want to look into I don't that believe in oceans. We've got great lakes. So uh... <laughs> spoken like a true, true mid-continent man, my friend. That's right. So where does MISO go from here? Like, are they, is there a sense that they're really concerned about this? I haven't felt that from them, but I'm also not living in MISO. Yes and no, man. So like they, they talk about the need for reliability, but they also want to accommodate all of the state policies that are being crafted. So MISO sees itself as a policy taker, not a policy maker. So when Minnesota has, you know, a 25% renewable energy mandate, MISO just says, okay, boss, we'll try and get it done for you. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of the, you know, Illinois is the same way there. A lot of them is in MISO, part of Chicago is in PJM. But so, you know, MISO is trying to do, they're trying to serve too many masters. And I think that they're dropping the ball when it comes to reliability, because they're trying to integrate too many renewable resources. I also think that eventually there's too many coal plants going offline in the next few years. And I don't know if there's enough natural gas capacity coming online to, Mm -hmm. to make up for that. So I think, you know, when I was talking with MISO, trying to get that stack, trying to get my lifesavers, they said, well, you know, we're going to be hoping for non-firm imports from regional RTOs during this time. Wait, I non-firm said, imports? Yeah, non-firm Wait, imports. What does that mean? Does that... Uh, that means we hope there's going to be some extra power for us. Because I asked them straight up, like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm not being hyperbolic when I write this article. Sure. And I want to make sure that I'm getting the straightest answer I possibly can from an RTO uh, or ISO, whatever. Like, and we all know that's very difficult because they're mm-hmm. trained to never give a straight answer. So they said, well, you know, if we don't have enough capacity, we'll, we'll rely on non-firm imports. And I was like, well, what if those non-firm imports are not available? Would blackouts be reasonable? And then they said, yes, under those circumstances, some load shedding may be required. Right? I love load shedding. Load it makes shedding. it sounds like you're taking off a jacket. Yeah, it like... does. Just like take a load <laughs> off, Fanny. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this game where each region starts to assume that imports are going to be available. Yes. Is a very dangerous game to play for, I think, what should be obvious reasons. Well, yeah, look at California. I mean, yeah. I, there were so many people in Minnesota after Texas blackouts happened that said, oh, that could never happen in Minnesota because we have responsible planning of our electric grid here in Texas. They just don't plan. They believe in free markets to settle the, you know, the, you know, it's basically the smug suburban Minnesota mom mm-hmm. attitude here, wine mom. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and it's just like, well, you guys are planning to fail. Mm-hmm. You guys are basically doing the same things. You're just doing it under the guise of having some stamp of approval from, from the public utilities commission. So yeah, I think it's going to probably get worse in MISO before it gets better. And I think that's just the way it is everywhere. Like California, I don't know if it's ever going to get better there. Uh, yeah, I but, don't either, to be honest. I mean, but I can't believe that FERC let them do what they did to steal uh, that power from Arizona. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Oh, like, I believe it. The Dems I, are in charge. Yeah, but it's still such an incredible overreach of, I think, FERC's mandate to ensure that any of this behaves the way it's supposed to. 
I just don't have much faith that anybody really believes in the laws or like, I know, I know. I'm so cynical. So, (laughs) so for me, it's just like, oh, is this convenient? Cool. Let's grab it. But yeah. So I think that there's probably going to have to be a reliability problem before reliability becomes, and even like it happening in Europe won't be enough either. Right. Like it's going to have to happen here. Like any idiot can learn from their own mistakes, but it takes like smart people to learn from the mistakes of others. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if we're there. So I don't know. Have to learn the hard way. Yeah. I used to have a friend that used to say, whenever I was like struggling to adapt, he would just look at me and he would go, more pain is required. And I- What worried. a good friend. I know. What a great friend. I <laughs> yeah. hope you're still friends with him. Oh, I am. Um, good. But I mean, that's just the, I think that that's just the way it's going to go. Um, and I think we'll see that. I mean, that's what was so inspiring to me, is so inspiring to me about seeing what's going on in West Virginia. I believe the moratorium just passed the- um, Senate there and is now moving towards the house. And it was pretty unanimous. Cool. Like that, that seems to be the way to go. So lifting the nuclear moratorium, right? Yeah. Lifting the nuclear moratorium. Yeah. They're also looking into using some of their coal waste to get rare earths. Rare earths. Yep. Yep. Do you guys do that in Minnesota? They're looking at it in North Dakota where, yeah, where they do a lot of, so they have a lot of mine mouth plants in North Dakota. They have lignite out there that they use. And mm-hmm. I've been to one of those plants. It's super That's where cool. you just shovel it straight in, right? You pull yeah, it out. And yeah. Mine in. mouth yeah. just means there's no transportation. You built the power plant right on top of the coal field. And all you got to do is they use these cool buckets. Like it's cool. And they're all electric, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's, it's pretty awesome. Like the bucket lines and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But uh, yeah, they're looking at recovering rare earths from their, their fly ash. And they're also looking at carbon capture out there, which is mm-hmm. interesting to me in, in some ways, but you know, that you're going to be losing 30% of your power. So it's kind of bittersweet. Like yeah, yeah. Nu- nuclear is exciting to me uh, because you, it's got, you know, more energy density than fossil fuels, which means mm-hmm. it could theoretically be cheaper someday. So mm-hmm. that's what, that's what I'm signed up for. Like, give me that sweet, sweet nuclear power for less yeah. than I'm currently paying and let's build as many as we can. Yeah. I want that. And I would like some of them to be co-generating facilities where we could get some district heat mm-hmm. out of that mm-hmm. as well. You know, I think there's great opportunity there. So we'll leave it at that. Dude, thanks so much for coming back. This was a blast. As always, I'm sure you'll be back again. And everybody, remember, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.